want you to listen to these words. Listen to them very closely. The times look awfully dark indeed. And as the clouds grow thicker, the stupidity of the nation seems proportionally to increase. And if the Lord had not a remnant here on this earth, I would have very formidable apprehensions. But he loves his children. Some are sighing and some are mourning before him, and I am sure he hears their sighs and sees their tears. I trust there is mercy in store for us at the bottom of all this, but I expect dire times before things get into the right channel, before we are humbled and taught to give him the glory. The state of the nation, the state of the churches, are both deplorable. Those who should be praying and worshiping are disputing and fighting among themselves. Alas, how many people are more concerned for the mistakes of the government than for their own sins? This was written by John Newton, who gave us amazing grace. In Olney, England, 242 years ago in 1778, how they speak to us today, how they speak to us today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, all the things that are here upon this earth that we see, that we comprehend, that we are moved by, that we are suffered by, that we don't understand and can't comprehend. We have you, and you alone, in your word, in prayer, to bring into our hearts and our minds the clarity, the comprehensions, and the understanding of our God in heaven. Give us this morning that understanding, Lord, of the beauty, the majesty, and of the truth of your word, the Holy Script. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Newton wrote these words. You could pretty much change the author and the date to today, could you not, in many of the things that he wrote about. It tells us many things about the changing within the church and the changes of time over the centuries. And it immediately conjured up an old song that had been written back in the 60s sometime by a man by the name of Bob Dylan, an artist and recording star and, and a musician. He said, the times, they are changing. If you look at what Newton said, they are changing. Times always change but they are coming to an end because God's word says so. So our text is gonna be in Hebrews 10, but I want you to go to Hebrews chapter one as we get started. We'll go through a, through, through a few verses within Hebrews before we get to the fullness of our text to give us an understanding 
of the beautiful harmony and relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the things that were changing out of and from the Old Testament and fulfilled and changed and brought together in the New Testament. And so we go to this book, this book of Hebrews, we do not know who wrote this book. There's many summations of who did it, Apollos, Ephaphras, Timothy, uh, Paul, and uh, many others, but we're not for sure. But yet we know that the fullness of the book is a book rich in Old Testament language, rich in Old Testament wordage, rich in Old Testament verbiage and verses. And it is written to a people, a church, a group, who were themselves going through suffering, suffering from within and suffering from out at that period of time 2,000 years ago. And the uniqueness of this book of Hebrews is that the major audience in it is Israelites, our Hebrew people. And that's the uniqueness of this book. Many of the other epistles that were written uh, were written to a very mixed audience. Even though this was written in somewhere, theologians feel, between 40 and 65 AD, it was written to mainly Herodian Jews in the area of Italy, in some particular area we're not for sure. But that he addresses it to the Hebrews is the main crux and crucible of it is that he is dealing with a very, very religious audience, a very, very knowledgeable audience of the Old Testament, a people who were versed in the Old Testament, whether they be all Jews that were there and some proselytes, the Old Testament would be paramount in the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament priests would be paramount within their understanding and now they were making a great transformation, a great transition into understanding from works and the ceremonies and the law to grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Quite, quite a transition for them. And so as he addresses them, he starts off the very first chapter and the very first verses, separating yet joining this. So let's look at these first three verses in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son when he appointed him heir of all things to whom also he made the world. And he Christ is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now those few words alone to this audience would be totally in opposition to what they had been known, what they had been taught for years and years. Though this church is developing, though it is a, a church that has been established, it is mixed with many, many people from many uh, different divisions and tribes. And so within this, they're finding out now that law, the prophets, and the priests is not the covenant you're under, but it's grace and truth revealed in Jesus Christ in this new covenant, 
And so he starts that off and he, he is warning them, he is cautioning them. And that is one of the major thrusts within this portion of scripture is that for them to fall back to this Old Testament structure of ceremony and rituals and works. He is encouraging them and he is showing them that now with grace and truth we live by the new transformation of God in his son Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Verse, excuse me, chapter 2 verse 1 and he says knowing this about the first three verses of chapter 1 in chapter 2 verse 1 he says for this reason explaining the, the aforementioned things to you we must pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away for if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and sin received a just recompense how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So here is the push and the emphasis. He's going to explain to us the old covenant promise of a new covenant reality, a New Testament reality. The reality of salvation as promised by God in the Old Testament and before the worlds begin, coming to a new now. So when we overview Hebrews, we look at it this. We're going to see prophet, priest, king. Prophet, priest, king. All structured under the Mosaic law. And we're going to see how Christ has fulfilled all these in the new covenant. Not doing away with the old covenant, but fulfilling it fulfilling it. This is very important for us to know because now under the new covenant, the old covenant becomes a part of us, in us and for us because of Christ. So it's going to show you throughout the whole book of Hebrews the superiority of Christ as the high priest, the highest priest that could be within the Levitical structure of Old Testament priesthood. We're going to see the inauguration of the new covenant in his blood from and distinguish from the old covenant. We're going to see warnings and cautions to the faithful, to those that this man is writing to and to us today. What we are to do, how we are to do, based on all the premise of the faithful doctrines that God has conveyed to us in the covenant of salvation. And that will bring us to the understanding of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If God has given you life in Jesus Christ, there is going to be a transformation in you. If God has done this work in you, there is going to be results. And within those results is going to be the desire to persevere day by day by day in bringing glory and honor to the Lord. And that's what we will see as we go through here. But then again, in chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me, I went to chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, who are partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, and as Moses was also faithful in his house. For he... Christ has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just 
so much as the builder of the house is more, has more honor than the house. And for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And now Moses was faithful in his house, in the Old Testament, as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to come later. So when we look back at the Old Covenant, they're looking forward to that which was to come later. But Christ, verse 6, was faithful as a son over his house, the church, whose house we are, there's the possession, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. It's showing us that it's not by works, but it is works that we do. There is a work related to this great salvation that God has given us, and that work is displayed in every one of us in our life. So let's move on over to Hebrews chapter 9. And remember, just keep in mind as we go through this, we're going through the law, the prophets, and the priest. Those were the main aspects within the Old Testament, and they are the things we're going to look at that are completed and fulfilled in this New Testament as we get into uh, the fullness of it. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place, that's the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies, made with hands, which was a mere copy of the true temple. But he entered into heaven itself now and to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the Old Testament high priest would enter the holy place year by year by year with the blood of his own, those sacrifices. Otherwise, Christ would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of all the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin in the sacrifice to himself, of the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation, the completion of salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await for him. So when we look at this portion of the passage as it's guiding us over to chapter 10, we're looking at the reality here that there was one death, one death for sin as the high priest Christ offered himself as the spotless lamb of God. And now he has moved out of a fulfilled prophecy, a fulfilled priesthood, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as King, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he did this in his appearance when he came here in the holy place, the Old Testament temple, the holy of holies where these sacrifices were performed, particularly the once a year sacrifice of atonement. The temple does not exist anymore. And the temple is not 
a place built with hands. It is the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. And now he sits in the right hand of God in the presence of God for us. And he offers himself once for sin. And he does not offer himself for sin over and over and over as do some practice that way within some churches. And it was appointed for all men to die once, and then comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. That's the completion of salvation. Sin has been accounted for by God, in the offering of his son Jesus Christ is given to us and now within that there will be his return and the consummation of his salvation so we see that he died once that he was the lamb of God that he fulfilled that role of priest he sacrificed himself he was the high priest who gave himself as the offering and so within that, we find that the prophecy of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, pointed toward Christ within many of the portions of scriptures. So he will return to us again to fulfill the, the last portion of salvation, and that portion is judgment, which brings condemnation, but which also brings the fulfillment and the finality of salvation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's going back and setting forth the prophecy, the priesthood, the law, so that we can see that being fulfilled, so that we'll know what he's going to be talking about a little bit further in chapter 10 as we get to it. So in chapter 10, we see here, verse 1, for the law, since it has since it was, has only a shadow of the good things to come, and it's not the very substance of all things, can never by the same sacrifice year by year by year, which they offer continuously, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. So what does that mean? Why was there Old Testament sacrifices? Why was there Old Testament sacrifices under law? They were a part of the law. The law were the commandments given. Those commandments of do and don't. They were set forth to those people for obedience. And within that form of obedience, there was the necessity for repentance. And within that form of repentance was the sacrifices that came about. So the law was only a shadow of what was to come. It was the precursor. It was that which was revealed in the Old Testament and which they lived under and by. And so when the sacrifices were given on the benefit and for the benefit of those Israelites, it was a shadow. It was temporary. It was not destined to be the forgiveness of sins eternally. It was a type of what was to come. It was a type of what was to come where there would be forgiveness of sin by the death of Christ one time. And it even says here, because the blood of bull and goats 
can never take away sin. But it was required by God. It was set forth in the ceremony and the structure of all the Old Testament under the Mosaic law. And this is the temple where it was performed and many times after the temple was built. And it was done by priests, Levitical priests from that tribe of the Levites under Aaron. And it was because God had told them to do so. But it was a shadow and a type of the real sacrifice and the full priesthood and the fulfillment of the prophecy and the setting forth of the king in Jesus Christ at Calvary. So then we go down to verse 9 of chapter 10. He, he said, Behold, Christ speaking, I have come to do thy will. I take away the first in order to establish the second. I fulfill the first in order to establish the second. The old covenant, the second being the new covenant. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And every priest that stands daily ministering and offering time after time after time with sacrifices which can never take away sins, he offered one sacrifice for sins once and for all and sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, waiting from the time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind and I will write them there. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where there is the forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's been done. It's been completed. And what was in the Old Testament under the ceremony and the sacrifices has now been fulfilled. This was all set forth to us in the Old Testament, and this group of people listening to what was being conveyed here from this, the writer of Hebrews, would have understood this fully as coming out of Ezekiel 36, coming out of Isaiah 42, and particularly out of Jeremiah 31. The covenant God said, I will make, and pay attention to that, I will make, I will put on their mind, I will put on their heart. It's a covenant of God enacted by God and conveyed by God through his son Jesus Christ by the grace God gives us and the faith to be able to believe that is gifted to us likewise. So let's go to, uh, uh, excuse me, let's go to verse 19 right now. Well, let me look at, yes, verse 19. And it says here, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. That was the Old Testament holy of holies where the sacrifices were given. Now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have the faith and belief 
that we will act upon to be able to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This is rich in Old Testament and related New Testament passages here. So in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We have confidence by the blood of Jesus, by a new, it's a new covenant, living way, regeneration, supernaturally we are re we are resurrected in new life, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. The Old Testament, there was a huge veil at the back end of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And that veil separated everyone from ever entering into it, except the one priest once a year during the Day of Atonement, where he was allowed to go in there and offer the ultimate sacrifice of the oxen for the sins of the people. Now, when we see that, we have to realize that this relates also to the Gospels. And we look at Mark chapter 15, and we see when Christ was on the cross, and he was at his moment of death, and he said, it is finished, in Mark chapter 15, the veil of the temple that stood right there in the city, that outside the city where Christ was where he was crucified, but in the city, that temple veil tore from the top to the bottom. Literally tore. It's not a metaphor, it's not an illustration, it happened. It tore and became separated. When Christ uttered those words, it is finished. He has fulfilled this high priesthood, he has fulfilled the sacrifice, he has fulfilled the Old Testament law, he has filled what the prophets spoke about long ago, now became realized in him. So that's why it's using this Old Testament word that we now enter through the blood, the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the new covenant of Jesus Christ, and uh, which is his flesh, his body and blood. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's the church, now, we in this covenant, believers, those brought in, out of death into life by the new birth of regeneration, we have a great high priest over the house of the church. And we come to this portion of the scriptures, verse 22 through 25. As we stop right here, we look at the beauty of all of this, the Holy Spirit's working, the covenant, you know, the completed work, it, it's done, it is completed. Christ has fulfilled in the new covenant by being the spotless Lamb of God, his priesthood. He has overcome sin, he has put sin to death, and he has fulfilled the law. Now the law becomes a part of our whole moral being and our essence. The do's and don'ts of the law now become the want-tos from us of the law. We desire to. And in truth, in, in Jesus Christ, and the truth that has set us free in the new birth, that we have been transformed and conformed into the image of God, and His Son, Jesus Christ, it is our desire now to live according to the Scriptures, according to all of the Scriptures of which Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament part of it. Now, 
anything within there becomes a part of us. The law does not go away. The law becomes a law within us because the law taught us what sin was and it revealed sin to us. Christ fulfilled that. Now the beauty of the law is our desire to live within the law and by the law and by the whole word of God. So when we see that, we come to a part here within the scriptures where it's always interesting when you're studying these things and when you're looking at them. We come to four passages here. So he's saying, now where there's forgiveness and we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant by being resurrected ourselves, born again as Christ was resurrected in a new and living way, through the veil, his body and blood, as we share right there. He said, and since we have this great high priest over us, he stops. And now from doctrine and basic teachings, we're going to application. He says, look at verse 22, let us. Look at verse 23, let us. Look at verse 24. Let us, and look at verse 25, let us. Speaking directly to us, and here is where this marvelous little word, L-E-T, has a big meaning. Let us. What does let mean? You know, in the... In the languages of scripture, they were written many years ago, and this is why they have experts to go and study all these so that he gives us an understanding and a comprehension of specific words that have dynamics within the meaning of the word. This is one of those small words with a big meaning, applied to us, directed to us, and given to us to understand what to do with this. Let us, let. We have a common today, modern understanding of the word let, which has its means maybe a suggestion. It might mean that permission, we can or we can't allow it. You know, it's optional. And in the Old Testament, this Greek word had a completely, excuse me, in the New Testament, this Greek word had a completely different meaning to it. Completely different meaning to it. And words have changed over the years, but in this word, these words from the antiquity of scriptures, they give us the clarity. So it does not mean to allow or give permission or suggest a passive attitude. Well, let them do this if you want to or if they want to, you know. It's unknown. It's perhaps optional. So it is, it is the Greek word enoikio. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have plenty of Greek translations of the scriptures, and I can go to a particular word to look at it for the significance of it so that it has an impact on us. And it is a verb in the present active imperative tense. Present active imperative tense. That's big stuff, you know, when you're, you're doing the Greek and you're doing the Hebrew and in seminary and all that. But the importance to it means it's imperative. And anybody that's been in high school, maybe yesteryear, I don't know what they teach now, but it's English. And you had a sentence, you could have multiple sentences, and they were called, what is the mood of the sentence? 
And one mood of the sentence was indicative mood. And the other mood of another sentence was the imperative mood. And within the indicative mood, it was simply giving you facts and information. It did not require any movement upon your part. In the imperative mood of the sentence, it required, it commanded, it demanded. Like you say to your child, go get those shoes off the ground. That's imperative. Christ said, go, therefore, to all the nations and proclaim the gospel. That's imperative. Indicative would be what Christ said in John chapter 3. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That requires no action. It is simply a statement of authenticity and fact. Paul said in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespass and sin. That's indicative. So the mood is important. There is an immense intensity here. And it is telling you to dwell in, to inhabit. It's a duty you must perform intensely, continuously, and diligently. That's what this word means in the text. It's not let somebody else. It's not be passive about it. It's not being optional about it. It says let you be intensely, continuously, and diligently involved in it. Let what it says inhabit you and dwell in you. It's not just to allow it to happen. It's for you to make it happen. Let us what? Let us. Verse 22. Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised this covenant is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And let us not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more because the day and the time, they're not changing. They've always been changing. They're coming to an end. This is what this text is saying. You draw near with a, full, a sincere heart because faith is given to you, and that is the ability to believe and trust upon the word of God and the promises of God. And verse 16 earlier in here told us that that covenant changed our mind and our heart because we've been sprinkled clean. There's an Old Testament aspect of purification, the washing, the cleansing that they did on all the sacrifices. It's not a water cleansing that we have. It is a spiritual cleansing in the new birth that God gives to us that now transforms and conforms us to him. And let us hold fast the confession of our faith. You want to hear an interesting definition of confession and confidence it says it is faith and belief that one will act in a right proper and effective way and amazingly that comes out of a Webster dictionary but it pinpoints exactly what we're saying here confidence and confession is what we believe in in the right 
proper comprehension of the truth. For God has promised and he is faithful. The salvation will come about as he has promised. Let us consumer, consider how to encourage one another to love and good deeds and let us not forsake our assembling together. These are not threats to us. These are not to make us feel guilt and ashamed. They're to tell us what we should be doing if we have tasted of this great salvation God has given to us. Not what we should be doing only, but what we want to do in the new heart and the new mind God has given to us. God has given to us. Let me conclude here. Let us, you see to it, you do it. It is a command. It is conveyed that way from the scripture. And the word study proves it. This hymn we just sang, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Did you notice that last stanza? Let us labor for the master from the dawn to setting sun. Let us tell of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all our life is over and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Our work. When we find this book and we find these words, there is a work we're to do. Jesus Christ has completed his work here on this earth as prophet and priest and king. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father where we will come again to judge. So let us labor. Let us tell because he has given us a work to do to bring glory and honor to his name. And I'm going to conclude with these beautiful verses that Paul wrote out of Colossians. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is reconciled with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed when he comes, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Let the word, excuse me, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, singing with thankful hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. giving thanks through him to God the Father. The day is coming when we will see him in glory. But we have a work to do until then. Let us not forsake it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words of your scripture. The beauty of the book of Hebrews were the Old Testament and the New Testament merged together in the beauty and the majesty of the priesthood and the prophecy and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this morning and this time of worship. In his name, amen.